exterior, interior, restaurant, bar, club, day, night. Yo ho and a bottle of rum. I don't know why I just said that, but I did. I like to say stuff that doesn't make sense because nothing ever does. My name is Monist Rose. This is Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film. This is part two. Welcome back to part two. We left you on with a cliffhanger of last week's episode, or whenever you listen to Ben Lobato's part one episode, this is part two, and it's a real doozy. I mean, if you thought the material that we talked about in part one was cool, well, this is going to be even cooler. It's going to enhance part one, because that's what part two does. It's that Empire Strikes Back sequel, you know, the one that's even better than the first one. Oh, was I just controversial? I guess I was. Anyway, welcome to part two. We are talking with Ben Lobato, co-showrunner of Queen of the South. We are talking about Sieta Gotas, which was the fictional tequila bar featured in Queen of the South. This is our continuation of that awesome fireside chat. Go. I'm, I'm the head of either a studio or a network, and I'm giving you carte blanche to do any show that you want, but there's only one rule that you have to put your dream restaurant or bar in it. Like what is, but it has to be original, no IP. Like what is the, uh, your, the, uh, Benjamin, uh, Lovato dream fictional restaurant or bar for your next ultimate TV show or film? You know, one of the things that I might do, because I think about sometimes worlds and storylines that I would do and, you know, look, and for me, if I'm going to do something with a restaurant or bar, it's going to involve crime. There's there's this thing that a lot of people don't know about, which is like in the early 40s, there, there were these um, floating casinos right off of the L.A. coast. They were boats. They were barges. And it was legal. And so people would take these shuttle boats out to these casinos that were out there. And eventually they shut it down because the government shuts everything down. That's fun. And so but but there were these casinos out there and a lot of them, they were owned by different mobster mob figures you know and then a lot of those guys that owned those casino barges boats that were out there they ended up going to vegas and they were they were opening casinos and whatnot but i would i would love to do one of those um restaurant bars off the coast off of malibu that's just out there and to tell that story what is that you know what happens out there like you know i just think that that would be really cool wow i never knew that this is say um this is pre-World War One. No, this is a little after World War One. Like, is it around that time era? No, well, it was early 40s because you think oh, about early Vegas. 40s. Okay. Vegas didn't really get going till like mid to late 40s. So this was before all the gangsters went to Vegas. This was this was kind of like what they were doing. They had these casinos right there off the coast of LA. So they had that, and then they had places in Tijuana. Mexico. So that's what the mob was doing on the West Coast before they decided to go to the desert because nobody wanted to go to the desert. Remember, there would no there was not AC had not been around in vehicles or anything like that. So these guys would have to drive out to Vegas with no ACs in the middle of the, you know, the de the desert and the heat. Nobody wanted to do that. But once they shut down these casino barges, they had to find 
places where they can go and run casinos. And of course, there were speakeasies, casinos all over Los Angeles, but they saw they saw opportunity in Nevada because gambling was legalized. And so that's so that's where all the money went. All right. So you mentioned, yeah, like crime is, um, you know, some of the stories uh, you like to tell or or that's one of the, um, the passions you have. Like how then how did you find your voice? Like, how did you uh, go and really specialize into this niche or maybe not specialize, but just say to yourself, hey, I really love this. Uh, this is what I'm good at telling and sharing the world. You know, you know, that comes through just really trial and error, you know, because when I started out, I was writing, I tried my hand at comedy. I, I, I wrote like a romantic comedy. I like, I tried different things. And, and what happens is because, you know, storytellers oftentimes, you know, they have a great idea and they're like, I'm going to write that. And what happens over time is you realize that's a really great idea, but I'm probably not the person that's going to write the best version of that. The thing that I'm best at is doing muscular drama with a heart. That's that's kind of what I do, right? So it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean masculine. It means more like it's propulsive. It means that the stakes are super high usually life and death stakes, high tension, um, and with an emotional through line. Like, that's really what I do. But, you know, I grew up with gangsters, man. Like, I grew up with people, you know, on both sides of the border, with family. I worked in law enforcement. And, I, you know, there was just a lot of that. It's kind of like a personality type, right? And they say that a lot of times, like cops, right? They're just opposite sides of the same coin of the bad guys. It's a certain type of personality, you know, that I kind of like that I understand, I get, but also that in many ways, because I grew up a certain way with certain people, certain people that were close to me, friends, family, I don't judge them the way that somebody else might, because I knew them as three-dimensional living and breathing human beings that weren't defined necessarily just by their actions, you know, or just by the, the crimes that they committed, but more by like who they were you know, um, 24 hours a day, 360, you know what I mean? So it was just, it was that perspective that I bring, which is like humanizing the criminal, understanding their motivations. And for the most part, very few of these people are, you know, Al Capone sociopath types. They're generally working class people who are trying or striving for some version of the American dream and are locked out of that because they usually come from an immigrant class. Right. And so they're they're there. And a lot of times they're they can be they're not educated, but they're ambitious and they're they're highly intelligent. And this is the opportunity that they see. And so this is the this is how they find themselves in those situations. And so it's one of those things where I say there by the grace of God, go I had I been born in Mexico without opportunities, but with connections to people and knowledge, where would I be? Who would I have become? And so those are the things that like, you know, when you bring those perspectives into the into the writer's room or or into exploring a character, it just makes that character I would say just makes them three-dimensional in a way that people, the audience can connect to. So that's, that's the big thing. As I understand it and coming from wrong, I mean, it's about, it's really about compassion because it's about not only putting yourself in, in the other person's shoes, but you know, it's much more than just empathy in characters and in real life. It is having that compassion. Like, I mean, 
and on an understanding level. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and also like for me, like, you know, I've been in life and death situations, you know what I mean? And I've been with people and around people that, you know, that are just like the writers oftentimes I work with have no experience like this. You know what I mean? They didn't grow up and necessarily um, in situations where they were going to school and their main concern wasn't just um, passing the test, but I, well, I want to survive this day because there's a police substation and they're literally shooting and stabbing people in my high school, or, you know, I'm going across the border with my friends and like, you know, and this is at a time before everybody was talking about cartels, but there was a lot of cartels and smuggling and, you know, friends of mine from like high school, different places have, have died, have been murdered, have been kidnapped. Things have happened, but like being in this world around people and just, experiencing things that other people haven't experienced you know what i mean and and so that just brings a whole different real perspective to the page you know and i mean to all of our listeners you know for me for me personally it's i feel it's that's good for any human being i remember i was um a part of a volunteering program and we went up to um, a group of us went up to Delano maximum security prison um past bakersfield and you know we sat down with all of the men um, who were there in, you know, life without parole for um, X amount of reasons. But, you know, I, I gave these men a hug. I, I gave them, I gave them a hug because like you said, like there was compassion um, and, and they were, these men were taking a proactive approach to uh, better their lives and their families' lives. And I was out of my comfort zone in, you know, honestly, I was out, but it, that was good. It was good to get out and to hug these, to hug these men, you know, and to really, they saw me and I saw them for, you know, the human beings that they are. You know, I think this is what really in many ways is part of the success of like a David Simon who wrote The Wire because, you know, he spent time on the streets with these people, you know, writing articles. He knew the homicide detectives, he knew the cops and he knew the players. Right. And so he didn't see them. They weren't just statistics, that knowledge and that ability, but also being the guy who's not afraid to be on the streets and to get to know these people. That's a certain type of character. Right. He is a character. And that ability is what helps him to write those characters in such a way that we believe them and they're real. You know, I think that it's very important. I, you know, I, writers need to kind of live and have experiences in the world. And the most boring thing in the world to me is a writer who like, Hey, I went to high school and then I went to USC and then I, you know, and, I, and I'm here to like do the next version of like the millennial friends or whatever it is. I mean, that's fine. You can do that. You know what I mean? But it, but it's kind of like, I, you know, I'm not interested in watching that to be honest with you. And I don't know what that, I, I, ju I just feel like, we need to take risks. You know what I mean? We need to take risks in life and we need to put ourselves in situations that are uncomfortable. Meaning like you did, you went to the prison and you met with these people and that's a very risky proposition, right? And they're people that you probably have nothing in common with, but now you have a new experience because you connected with them and you see them in a certain way. You know, we all need to kind of like get outside of our bubbles and our echo chambers. It's kind of like I, I the, you know, the other day I said something and I go, I'm going to tweet this, but it, it's really true. And I said, you know, if all of your friends agree with you, you live in an echo chamber. 
and you're part of the problem. And that I really believe that, you know, we've stopped listening to each other. We've stopped having empathy. We've stopped asking why we've, we've kind of isolated ourselves, you know, in these sides that seem to be opposed to things that they really aren't, shouldn't be opposed to. There's no nuance anymore. And so, you know, people need to get outside of that because I think there's a problem with in many ways, Hollywood, because here everybody tends to think the same way. And that's not really, I would say, doesn't necessarily inspire great creativity instead of it inspires in many ways agendas. I think in some sense, it's the reason why a lot of times like we're not successful. You know what I mean? Shows fail, movies fail because there's not a great diversity of ideas. And I say that from, you know, with respect to everything, politics, religion, everything, life experience. When we look to um, hire and put together a room of writers, you want diversity. That's just not ethnic diversity. That's political. That's religious. That's that's um, experiential. And all of those things have to come into play because otherwise, you know, we're really not going to get three-dimensional characters with real storytelling, right? Because the result, we what we want to do is connect to people on a human level. And the way to do that is to find those universal truths. And you can't find them if you're not playing in, uh, you know, if you're playing in one small little bubble, you know, and you're not going outside of that, you know, and, and I think that's what foments so much of the division right now in our country, you know, is the fact that people are afraid and they're not getting outside of their world and they're judging people based upon ideas or feelings instead of like asking questions. Well, why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? Why did you vote that way? Or whatever it might be, instead of just canceling or discounting people or considering them the other, right? The uh, inhuman other who's um, devoid of anything of value or redemption because they don't see things the way I see them. And I think that in many ways, that's going to, that's a great loss for our society, but I think it's, it's going to be a problem for our business in the future. You know, and if only I'm going to make this a full circle and if only all of these, um, all of the people would just sit down with one another and break bread with one another to really either cook together and eat together. That's also a way to see the compassion from the other side to see, Hey, all right. And guess what? We're, we're, we're grounded. Now we're having the same, you know, tamales together. We're having the same brisket stew. We were having the same jambalaya. Yeah. That, you know, what? that's so true. There's nothing that brings people together more than food. Like it's, I don't care who you are. You have to eat. You cannot survive without eating. Right. But then great food that completely can like bridge the divide. And I think that we need to, and maybe listen, maybe you and you and I can start it. Maybe we have a conversation, but there need, there needs to be a movement of, um, uh, of a fellowship communion type of thing where people can get together and have a meal and stop hiding behind their computers and shooting daggers at one another. When the reality is, is that we have way more in common than not. And I think that food can be a great way to, to bridge that gap. We're going to add some mezcal and some uh, tequila there too, if you don't buy that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's perfect. Get everybody to loosen up, right? Yeah. So we're talking about three things, mezcal, food, 
and television, right? I mean, these are things that we all have in common, like a great show is a great show, you know? And so it's, you know, what's interesting. And, and this, I'm going to give you a little statistic that might surprise you, but our main audience on television for live TV was through the Midwest, right? Like we have a huge audience on the, on the East coast, on the West coast, Texas, but really what people call the flyover states, right? Those numbers keep the shows on the air. And surprisingly, you know, I mean, so we were surprised when we found out that statistic, but I guess that just goes to show great storytelling is universal and it can bring people together. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned with writers, you know, that you prefer, yeah, writers with really something to say rather than just the straight A person who went to high school, then to USC or Harvard. And now, you know, it's pretty much easy for him or her, you know, like how often do you take, say, a fledgling writer versus, you know, even, yeah, a writer with all of these credits and the best, biggest agent and manager ever? Well, those two writers are never in, in competition, right? Because there are different levels. There's a, there's a ladder, right, mm-hmm. in, the, in the TV writer world where, you know, that young writer is going to be up for a job as a staff writer, whereas the more experienced writer is going to be, you know, further up the chain. But I, I think what you're asking is like the difference between the writer who went to the private high school straight to USC and came out and is highly educated probably read the classics, has the best education possible versus, you know, the person that didn't grow up that way, maybe grew up in the single family home, has experienced tragedy, maybe some deprivation, have clawed their way up to even be sitting in a room for an interview. I'm always going to go for that person. You know what I mean? Now, that doesn't mean the other person is not talented. If they're sitting in front of us for an interview, they're both talented right? And you're trying to decide who you're going to hire. But when you're creating and crafting stories in a setting where you have multiple writers, like in a writer's room, you're looking for not just people who can write well, follow the format and know all the... You're looking for people who are bringing unique life experiences that are going to enrich in the story, you know, the story, the stories. And so... I'm always going to go for that scrappy person that fought their way up just because that's my story. Um, But also because I know that there are stories that they have that we're going to be able to draw from, you know, and um, now it's not to say the other writer doesn't have that, but it's just going to be different. The types of things that they're drawing from are going to be different. Ben, how do you stay consistently creative and not plateau? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to know what your mission is. What's your mission statement? Like, what are you, what are you here to say? If you're a writer, you have to have something that you need to express to the world. If you don't have that thing, then you're not going to know what to write about. You're going to be grasping for cool plots. But the way that I do it is like, I have certain themes that I know that I'm drawn to certain themes that when I explore those themes, I'm at my best. And so what I'm what I do is like I'm I'm a constant student, right? I'm reading all the time. I'm always looking for new ideas, new stories. And when I find a story that's interesting to me, it's usually because somehow it falls into the category of those themes that I love to explore. There's never a time when I'm like I don't know what to write about or I don't know what to do because I know the things that I love and I know the themes I I want to explore and the things I want to say to the world. And so the question is, how do I do it in a new way? And the way that I do that 
as I'm constantly exploring stories, whether it's news articles, books, whatever it is, documentaries. So I'm looking for different characters and different types of worlds. And when something, when something inspires me, it's usually because it falls into one of those categories. So I don't really have the problem of not being inspired because there's so much to draw from. You know, just in life, if you're not inspired, then you probably need a vacation. You know, that happens too. You get burnout, right? Like, you know, and I've I've been in times where it's not that that I I was uninspired, but it was really I was just tired. <laughs> so rest. You need to rest, and then you need and then you need to stimulate your mind. You know, I know a lot of people. I'm sure ask you know for advice, but like say. There was a smart, driven, emerging writer, and they asked you, um, what advice should they ignore? You know, that's that's hard to say because you, you'd have to give me like a piece of advice and say, is that good advice or not good advice? Right. I, I think that there's kind of like it's measured. So I'll give you an example. Like when when I moved to L.A., people were like, say yes to everything, go everywhere and um, mingle and network with everyone. Okay. So that sounds great in theory, but if that's all you're doing, you're not writing. I had to very quickly figure out like, am I going to be about town or am I going to be home writing and working and, and, you know, doing that part of it. And, you know, some people are able to balance that. I tend to be more of the workhorse. Like I enjoy getting out and doing the networking mingling thing, but really I'm here to work. I'm here to write. Like that's what gives me the most joy. And so instead of running around and trying to meet everyone and network and create these kind of like a lot of times relationships that are superficial, because when they say get out, meet everybody and network, what they're saying is like, mostly it's like find relationships, create relationships that are based upon what you can get oftentimes. Right. And so I think there needs to be a balance with that. So I, you know, my, my best advice to people is just like, write, write, write morning, noon, and night, just keep writing because it takes a really long time to get good, to get good enough that people are going to pay attention. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, it's that whole concept of like the 10,000 hours or whatnot. Like I think for writers, it takes a lot longer than that to finally reach the place where that's the voice and it's unique and it's your voice and you're confident in it and people will pay attention. It's, it's really, it's a difficult thing. You obviously watch TV, you watch films, but in terms of TV show, what is a, a TV show uh, that you love and say everyone that you know hates or it got it gets a very low rating on Rotten Tomatoes? Like what what is your just guilty pleasure of a TV show? You know, that's hard to say. I mean, to be honest with you, and I, and I think this is probably the case for most people in my business. I watch very little TV. I just don't have time. Yeah. I don't have time. You know what I mean? And so you know, if I'm going to tune in and actually watch a series, it's because I've heard from a handful of tastemakers that I respect that I need to tune in and check this out, not just for entertainment, because there's something new for me to learn from it. So that's a high bar. So that means that I'm not watching a lot of TV. And when I am watching something, oftentimes, again, like if I'm watching something, most of the time it's because I'm studying. That's what I do. I don't ever watch something without studying it. It's very rare. Guilty pleasures, like if I'm just relaxing, and particularly because I have I have young children, um, to, I have two daughters, and I'm like, what can I watch with them? We love watching. Like they are, 
I love Lucy, like that's the thing because like it's not going to be offensive. It's so much fun and it's it's genius and it holds up. And um, so like that's like when I'm kind of like, OK, I'm going to take like a quick break and the kids are like, let's watch something. And like so we're either going to watch, you know, one of their favorite Pixar cartoons or we're going to do like an I Love Lucy marathon. Ben, thank you so, so much. That was fantastic. That was awesome. That was incredible. I hope uh, all of you listeners got a lot out of that. We know that we did Behind Restaurant Fiction. And if you want to know more about what Ben is doing, if you want to know more about his work, just IMDB him. IMDB? Yeah, IMDB him. Google him. All of his work is there, especially Queen of the South. I know it just ended, but it was a fantastic, fantastic series. Anyway, and obviously he is on the Twitters, such and such, providing amazing advice and always plugging the Siete Gotas. And as for us at Restaurant Fiction, well, you found us. You know where to find us. We're on the Spotify's. We're on the iTunes's. We're on the Audible's. But of course, if you really want to make this experience even more award-winning, well, then check out and get yourself the 1919 Cheesecake. Go on their Instagram, the 1919 Cheesecake. DM them, and they will uh, provide you with sustenance that will uh, cause you, well, not going to lie, it's kind of like a drug. People who bite into this thing... uh, become easily addicted. Now, don't worry. There are no actual drugs inside of this, so don't you worry. Anyway, my name is Monis Rose. Once again, this is Restaurant Fiction. Until next time, nothing makes sense and nothing ever does. Cut to Exterior Interior Restaurant Bar Club Day Night